Confusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature Earth Hour and carnivorous plants. But first, here's the news. Solar astronomers are warning us it could be that time again. The sun goes through an 11-year cycle of activity. The sunspots are less active during the solar minimum and more active during the solar maximum. During the last solar cycle, the sun was very quiet during its solar maximum and, of course, extremely quiet during its minimum. This just happens to be the time during which we've developed an extensive dependence on our electrical grids and we've developed satellite technologies, which we're all starting to rely more on. This might be a problem if the next solar maximum in 2012 is not as quiet as the last one. Solar storms happen when the sunspots get very busy, when there are a lot of extra sunspots developing. Sunspots are disruptions in the magnetic field of the sun, little knots of magnetism that hover above the surface that concentrate plasma. Occasionally, the sun belches out a coronal mass ejection, a billion tonnes of electrified gas that heads out into the solar system. If one of these balls of plasma hits the Earth, it causes an electromagnetic pulse, where every conductor within the path of the pulse will short out with a very large direct current. When one of these coronal mass ejections hit Quebec in 1989, it shorted out the entire city of 6 million people for 9 hours. The transformers at the power stations melted Of course, this is nothing compared to what happened in 1859, known as the Carrington event after the British amateur astronomer Richard Carrington. For eight days of solar storms, the entire world got bombarded with electromagnetic pulses. In 1859, this meant that telegraph wires across America and Europe melted. Victorian magnetometers were driven right off the scale. In the modern world, The first problem is the electricity grid, which is designed to operate at ever higher voltages over larger areas. These high power grids act as very efficient antennas, which attract electromagnetic pulses, channeling enormous direct currents into the power transformers, which then melt. The second problem, that our whole lives are tied up with the electricity grid. We need it to pump water, we need it to pump sewage, we need it to deliver our food, we need it for everything. If there was another Carrington event, which could happen at any time, with only a few days warning perhaps, maybe not even that, then our whole system could be driven into chaos. Countrywide blackouts would mean countrywide lack of water. Countrywide water shortages would then roll into countrywide food shortages. Even the trucks that deliver our food are affected because you need electricity to pump petrol from the pumps. So when the fuel runs out, we really need an infrastructure that can withstand an electromagnetic pulse from the sun. We have three years to get it sorted out. For healthy kids, marry a stranger. In Gambia and India, 
they found that children who developed TB or hepatitis B were more likely to be related than not, which means there's probably less genetic diversity and variety. This would explain why humans are more attracted to people with a histocompatibility complex scent that is different to their own, that is, that's not of their own kin, than to one that is similar. The bigger the difference, the larger the difference, then the more things that your children will be genetically immune to. Biologists have found that genetic variety increases when conditions change, at least in damselfish. When damselfish have warmer waters, or the food supply changes, or there's new predators, then their offspring have a greater genetic diversity than when times are stable. So the damselfish has some way to increase the amount of sexual diversity that happens when the environment changes. On Saturday, 28th of March, the Earth went dark. For an hour. For Earth Hour. In that spirit, Mark West had a quick chat to Dr Ben McNeil, a senior fellow at the Climate Change Research Centre and the University of New South Wales, about the current state of knowledge on climate change and some of the policies that Australia and the world could implement to tackle the problem. After completing his PhD in 2001, Ben worked as a research fellow at Princeton University before taking up his post at UNSW. In 2007, he was chosen as an expert reviewer for the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and briefed his work to the Prime Minister. He was also recently elected to represent young scientists in the Federation of Australian Science and Technological Societies. Ben is a very impressive young scientist and one of Australia's most renowned climate experts, So sit back and listen to some of the latest climate change science, as well as all the current thinking and policy development going into the issue. My name is Ben McNeil and I'm I'm in the uh, Climate Change Research Centre. It's as a centre out of the University of New South Wales. Uh, We focus mainly on um, the physical science of climate change and how projections of the future climate will affect um, anything from temperatures to rainfall to agriculture to sea level, that sort of thing. The latest science, essentially, um, the latest scientific, scientific synthesis of What's happening with climate change was published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, in 2007. But the last uh, published peer-reviewed science that went into that was actually 2005. Um, So there's actually been a number of years of scientific evidence um, relating to climate change that has become available. And so we are in the process now, uh, um, in particular our our group, and, and I'm actually the um, the manager of this project to coordinate a synthesis, use, getting um, a, a mini snapshot of uh, the, the science since the IPCC, and so what the and we had a workshop recently on on the latest science in Copenhagen a couple of weeks ago, and 
In some areas, for example, in temperature projections, there hasn't been much change from the IPCC projections in, in the sense that the range of temperature warming uh, scenarios that, will, that the world will face somewhere between 2 degrees and 6 degree warming by 2100, and that's dependent on... Not, that's not uncertainty in the science, that's dependent on the emissions. So it's purely dependent on how where we go with the emissions. Okay. But in terms of other areas relating to climate, for example, um, the Arctic sea ice and, and Greenland ice sheets, which are really... They're like a thermostat because they reflect a lot of the, the, um, the energy that hits the Earth because they're like a mirror. Uh-huh. And so what we've found is that um, over the, the last... Particularly over the last 20 years, um, there's been this acceleration of, of melting um, on the on in sea ice in particular, and also disturbingly on the land ice, which is important for sea level. And so there has been recent evidence over the last couple of years that this has been accelerating. And actually, it's even beyond the worst case scenarios of the model projections of what these the number of different climate models from around the world are projecting. Is it, is it so this is a disturbing uh, new uh, new observation that the changes we're experiencing in the climate, particularly in the northern hemisphere, are accelerating and beyond our worst scenarios. The other thing that's particularly um, problematic and disturbing since the IPCC is that the emissions itself, so the carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions that we've emitted into the atmosphere are also beyond the worst case scenario and this is in particular due to since 2003 uh, this massive economic boom which has been driven by fossil fuels uh, in China and India and so since the dirty economic growth that that uh, that China and India experienced in recent times the emissions have gone beyond the worst case scenario globally and so that's another really disturbing element to this issue is that it seems that um, despite our best efforts over in global policy, the emissions are definitely not declining, they're actually increasing, which puts us on the, on the path of very significant risks in terms of future changes to climate and also how that these changes, whether it be sea level or, or agricultural food supply and water supply, will affect human populations, not just the environment. I, I think that's one of the things I think is really important in this is that this isn't just an, this isn't just an environmental um, crisis. Um, this is poten- uh, potentially a huge hu- uh, human crisis because the developed world they basically have their economies are linked heavily to agriculture mm-hmm. and subsistence, which means that changing climate and changing patterns of weather, that is rainfall belts and temperature, mean actually changing changing human prosperity and civilization as we know it because that's where civilization has been built over the last 100, 100 or 200 odd years um, in particular the growth has has been built around a stable climate whether it be around coastlines or around rivers or around um, water supply so the real emerging threat from my perspective which is really concern in the future is the is the emergence of this um uh, the interaction between the climate and human populations, that is, and in particular in the developed wo- developing world, where there isn't the capacity to adapt to changes. Whereas in the developed world, although it'll cost a lot for us, uh, in general there'll be a, a greater adaptation 
towards these changes. And so unfortunately, the, the um, most vulnerable in our society that are going to be the worst off is, is definitely quite present within this huge challenge in the next century. There's a lot of resistance out there to combating climate change, really, but we, we kind of combated CFCs quite yeah. quickly. Where does the resistance come from with, with climate change? I just think it's about change. You know, so there's, there's elements in our society and in each nation that resists um, change, even though change is for the better, could be for the better, and, and in this case is definitely is for the better. So I think it's really a case of how you view change in society. And some there are some elements, and um, in particular certain sectors, which have had a, had, had a um, I guess, have seen their, how you say, I guess their economic prosperity lie in the old way we've done things. And so a change in that, to them, they see it as a threat. But actually, in reality, there's nothing, nothing stays the same in our society. I, I mean, I think whether it's, whether it's, you know, human rights or discrimination or um, the economy in general, nothing stays the same. And I guess we have to try and I have to, or, and we all have to try and Em, um, embrace the change um, in terms of there's some big issues coming and if we don't embrace it I think there's more risks risks to uh, the status quo than it is the other the other scenario so I guess I guess it's a matter of um, how much we can try and impose change on a society that in general is conservative. That was Mark West chatting to Ben McNeil from the University of New South Wales about climate change. Over the next few weeks, Diffusion will play a few more snippets from that interview, which end up lasting as long as Earth Hour. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next, here's Jonathan Coulter with Mandelbrot Set. Pathological monsters cry the terrified mathematician Every one of them is a splinter in my eye I hate the Pinot space in the coke curve I fear the Cantor Turner he said And the Sapinski gasket makes me want to cry And a million miles away A butterfly flapped its wings on a cold November day A man named Benoit Mandelbrot was born And his unique geometrical insights Left him well equipped to face those demons down He saw that infinite complexity Could be described by simple rules Used his giant brain and he turned the game around And he looked below the storm Saw a vision in his head Of his pointed form Picked his pencil up and he wrote his secret down Just take a point called C in the complex plane Let's see one B is e squared plus C And C2 is E1 squared plus C And C3 is E2 squared plus C And so 
so on If the series of Z should always stay Close to Z instead of trend away That point is in the Mandelbrot set Mandelbrot set Rorschach test on fire In the day glow pterodactyl You're a heart-shaped box of springs and wire You're one badass fucking fractal And you're just in time to save the day Sweeping all our fears away You can change the world in a tiny way in heaven at least he will be when he's dead but now he's still alive and teaching math at Yale he gave us order out of chaos he gave us hope where there was none his geometry succeeds where others fail so if you ever lose your way a butterfly will flap its wings from a million miles away All crops grow better when you add fertiliser, whether it's nitrogenous organic chicken guano or electronically taking nitrogen out of the air to make ammonium nitrate. However, it takes time and money to gather it and apply it. Wouldn't agriculture be easier if plants evolved to fertilise themselves, the lazy sods? Well, some of them have. Feed me, Seymour! Some plants have evolved a symbiotic relationship with bacteria colonies to get nitrogen. However, I'm talking about the plants that find the nitrogenous compounds on wing and hoof. These plants snare their fertiliser like a hunter. Carnivorous plants have a much more effective approach by luring and trapping insects and digesting them. Carnivorous plants evolved around the world in poor, swampy soil and have evolved the knack of eating insects to get enough nitrogen and trace minerals. Venus flytraps evolved in Carolina and are the state flower of South Carolina. They grow leaves with a jaw-shaped end. The two lobes of the jaws are red with sweet nectar glands to attract insects. It's a common myth that they smell like manure, but the reality is that they smell like the sweetest of flowers. You attract more flies with honey than vinegar. The lobes also have several trigger hairs, which allow the Venus flytraps to join the elite ranks of plants that can count. The trigger hairs must be touched by an insect feeding on the nectar no less than three times for the trap to be sprung. Just once, and it might be the wind blowing a leaf and a waste of the flytrap's energy to close. Twice, it might just be raindrops, another false alarm. Three times is the charm. If it hits three times, then it's very likely to be an insect moving around the surface of the leaf. Even after the trap is sprung shut, by the action of the outside wall of the leaf swelling larger than the inside... The flytrap still has a last trick to make sure it's not fooled into wasting its energy by trying to digest when there's not enough food to give it more energy than it uses up. The lobes of the jaws end with what look like fine needle-like teeth that intermesh when the trap closes. At first, they intermesh lightly enough that there are small spaces which an ant could crawl out of and escape. Any insect small enough to escape is thrown back to grow bigger, like any good fisherman. If all the safeguards have been passed and the insect is too big to escape, then finally the flytrap seals up the trap and pumps in digestive juices. The juices dissolve the soft parts of the insect and absorb the nutrients as fertiliser. Digestion of a fly can take a week. The leafy traps will open again for the dried-out husk of the fly exoskeleton to be blown away, so the leaf is ready to trap new prey. 
Eventually, the trap ages, and it dies to be replaced by new leafy traps growing out of the central bulb of the plant. Drosera, or sundews, have little tentacles on their leaves with what looks like drops of dew at the tips, but are really drops of a sticky sweet glue that smells like nectar. Insects are attracted by the shiny sweet drops and land on the leaf to start feeding. They soon become the meal. The tentacles slowly move to get the insect more wet with gluey dew, and the insect is trapped on living flypaper. The tentacles curl around the insect and dissolve the soft parts to absorb the nutrients. Some sundews have snap tentacles that can whip out to catch prey in fractions of a second, just like John Wyndham's triffids. Sundews can be found all over the world. Serentia are American pitcher or jug of water plants. Their leaves are specialised to grow into a column that forms a pitfall trap. At the top is a lid to restrict or stop rainwater, depending on the species. The lip of the jug is full of shiny, sweet nectar glands. The plants are often coloured like flowers to attract insects and offer them a meal. The insects are guided by little hairs near the nectar lip to the waxy, slippery bits. The insects follow and slip and fall into the pitfall. Some serentia have tall pitfalls to make sure the insects can't fly out. Some have convoluted shapes with false windows to confuse the insects so they can never escape the labyrinth. Others fill with rainwater and add wetting agents so that the insects drown and decompose to fertilise the plant. In tropical and subtropical countries, you can find the hanging pitcher plants, Nepenthes. The main plant grows like a creeping vine and on the end of the leaves inflates a trap that looks like a beer stein with a lid. Like the Serencia, they attract insects with nectar and flower-like colours, and the insects fall in when the footing gets slippery. Inside the traps, insects find a special liquid, and they drown, and are quickly digested. Nepenthes grow in all sizes, and the bigger traps can catch cockroaches and mice. You might think that some of the insects would learn that their mates are dying when the trail ends, and therefore the ants, for example, wouldn't keep going up in columns just to be feeding themselves into the plant. But what researchers have found is that in the penthes, the traps aren't always set. So the ants can go along when it's dry, and they don't always fall in. In fact, mostly they don't fall in. But when it rains, or gets even just a little wet, it gets very slippery, and suddenly they all die and none go back to the nest to tell the tale. So in this way, the plants stop the insects evolving a counter-defence to the traps. The strangest self-fertilising plant would have to be Nepenthes lowii. It starts life looking like... It starts life looking like a normal Nepenthes with a creeping vine and hanging beer-stein-like insect traps. But when it gets taller, the upper traps grow differently. They grow an elongated shape with a perch instead of a nectar lip, and the nectar grows on the lid. Birds are attracted to the leaves, and they sit on the perch and eat the nectar. They don't fall into the trap to be eaten, as it's too wide, and the perch is too strong. Instead, the trap becomes a bird toilet. The plant now has a symbiotic relationship with the birds. They get yummy nectar, and the plant gets the guano to fertilise itself and thrive. Not on the roots, which have evolved for poor soil, but in its specialised leaves, which even have their own version of an S-bend that plumbers could learn from. Charles Darwin's book, 
insectivorous plants was the earliest scientific examination of coniferous plants. He was fascinated by them and grew his own collection. By feeding them different things, such as eggs, he was able to work out that these inhabitants of poor soil were mainly extracting nitrogen compounds from their prey, just as a common plant would extract nitrogen compounds from soil. Just as a common plant would extract nitrogen compounds from rich soil. To this day, people growing their own carnivorous plants will sometimes fertilise the plants from their traps instead of from their, from their roots. Instead of from their roots. By feeding them with eggs when they're growing in greenhouses that are free of insects. If you're fortunate enough to live in Sydney, the temperature range and humidity range of the climate mean that you can grow any of the world's carnivorous plants in your backyard or on your balcony or bathroom window. If you're fortunate enough to live in Sydney, the temperature range and humidity of the climate mean that you can grow almost any of the world's carnivorous plants in your own backyard or on your balcony or bathroom window. Most other places are too hot or too cold or too dry for at least some of the year, so you'd need a greenhouse or a terrarium. I've been growing them for 25 years and my collection nicely keeps the pests away without the use of any poisonous pesticides. It's green pest control. The Triffids are lovely this time of year. If you'd like to grow your own, or simply find out more about carnivorous plants, then you can visit the carnivorous plant exhibitions at the Mount Tomar Botanical Gardens in the Blue Mountains and the Glass Pyramid Tropical Centre of the Sydney Botanical Gardens. You can find local nurseries and fellow enthusiasts through the Australasian Carnivorous Plant Society online at www.aucps.com. That's www.aucps.com. There are local societies in every Australian state. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program was Mark West. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Heaven
Just in time to save the 